Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics, Adventures in New Age and the Occult. I'm your host, Morgan Dolan. And I'm Norm. I'm just here to learn. We're here to explore the people and phenomena that have shaped how we understand the unseen world. So we're back for HPB Part 3. The notorious HPB. (laughs) So what do you remember from where we were last time? It is such a carnival tour, listening to her life. And the thing that really baffled me is, as we're listening to her, she's she's globetrotting. She's got, you know, somehow enough wealth to be comfortable and a complete lack of sexuality, which I feel like sometimes clashes with her incredible charisma. So she's drawing these men in. She's got a husband that she's not really into. She randomly picked up a stalker who she married under threat of him committing suicide. On the condition that they weren't going to bump uglies. And then when he was like, well, yeah, but. (laughs) Then they ended up getting like an annulment. She's got some profane nicknames exchanged (laughs) with this guy who's fully on her dick for all this random exotic like mysticism that's going on. They got an apartment together that's just filled with a taxidermied menagerie. She's constantly chain smoking and just dropping beat poetry. And what's crazy for me is at no point can I graft any kind of like conventional motive onto her because she's always had money and always been kind of comfortable. And it doesn't seem like she's she's gone full billionaire on this and just like, I need more, I need more. She doesn't seem to be trying to start a cult of personality, but she does seem to be maintaining an image. She published what seemed like a fairly successful book and then ardently refused to do a follow-up. Like, she did her weird, like, Joseph Smith stream of consciousness, like, this is it. This is what the spirits are telling me. And just kind of left it at that, was like, I got it all out. If you're looking for truth, it's in there. So, yeah, it's just this whirlwind. And we still haven't gotten to the point where she goes to, I want to say, like, the subcontinent, the Indian subcontinent somewhere. And I think that is where she's finally proven to be a fraud somehow. And I'm still just like, in what way? Because we already know she's having, like, spoon-bending parties or whatever. Like, she's doing weird stuff, but it's not her main thing. And what do you remember from Alcott, her (laughs) number one fan? I mean... (laughs) He also had a pretty dynamic life. And I know that as they are headed to the Indian subcontinent together, he's had like an interesting career in law. And I kept calling it forensic accounting because he was looking for like military subcontractors who were defrauding the government, the federal government during the Civil War, I believe. And he was pretty good at it. And he like left behind a fairly lucrative quasi-hobbyist career as a spiritualist of some kind, uh, of some persuasion, and then got way back into it when he and the uh, old horse started really having their letter correspondence. Yeah, so he he seemed to kind of run the spoon-bending parties at the taxidermied menagerie in their apartment. Uh, but yeah, he, he used his governmental connections to get like a presidential appointment as a a diplomat or an ambassador or something to what I think is British colonial India, where he's just going to be like, all right, we're here. It's official. (laughs) We're comfortable, I guess. They're probably going to get a stipend. Uh, You shall see what happens to them. (laughs) 
So a couple things that also came out last time. ISIS unveiled the big tome, what came right. down really hard against Christianity and this... Well, against the hierarchy organized religion Christian, right? Exactly. And this sort of anti-Christian rhetoric actually allowed Alcott to bond with his, what was called his Hindu correspondence. And since there was already a real anti-missionary vibe in India at this time, mm, mm. and so he was writing to people in Sri Lanka, then Ceylon, I'm going to use the modern names just for simplicity. And one thing I missed last time was that before they left for India, so Alcott was already a self-professed Buddhist. Whoa. So, yeah, I missed that one too. So in addition to being a theosophist, it doesn't preclude that he can also be a Buddhist. So he was getting really right. deep. And this is often called a Creole faith, sort of a mixed up faith, because it made mm. room in his own personal philosophy for a soul and divinity and concepts that are foreign to traditional Theravada Buddhism. And his correspondence, he got a lot of people to join the Theosophical Society in Asia. And that's sort of the missing link for how there was a community to welcome them when they got uh, there. And he he did this unprompted? Like he was just getting into Buddhist philosophy? Or was HPB kind of like, there's some interesting people you might want to exchange letters with? I think the Buddhism was already in HPB's thing. And so he mm. probably reached out or got connected through society. I think he developed his own correspondence connections. And I think it's really interesting that they pointed out that not all of his correspondence was like hunky-dory. He got a lot of pushback in letters about his understanding of the nature of Hinduism and the nature of Buddhism. And he didn't seem like he was really willing to engage with it beyond, nah. <laughs> He came to his own understanding and then was resistant to further. And the source was, uh, which was the biography, the White Buddha, about his sort of religious, I'm going to say right. religious biography. And it was pretty critical of Olcott being locked in a colonial mindset that he just couldn't escape mm. from the time. So not viewing his correspondence as true equals. Mm, sure. So despite the key tenet of theosophy being all creeds being equal, men, race, all these things having equality, there's still a framework of colonial thinking that just is inescapable. For, for To individuals, maybe, but not the... Yes. It's not baked into the society, but when you have all these external social conditioning and reinforcement, then it's like, yeah, you're, you're going to be that way. Yeah, it also seems a little bit like Alcott might have been stuck in the mentality of a guy that studied abroad for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But before Fair enough. before we really just write him off as this one-dimensional colonialist caricature, it's it's a little bit more complex than that because right around the time he left for India, he was commissioned to do a pamphlet, which seems like the 1800s version of a book or a light book about the history of America. And so Alcott's American history is given its publication date in 1881, shockingly pluralistic. Wait, who who commissioned him to do this? I'm not entirely sure. He got commissioned to write this. He's a writer. He's writing right. for magazines. He's a journalist. He's sort of known as a writer. But okay. the American history is unique because at that time, most histories are written about like Columbus arrives, Puritans, the end. Really? And Alcott began with the Eskimos and the Aztecs, or now they'd be called Inuits and Eskimos. So he's doing a history of like 
the North American continent, mm -hmm. not like a political history. Begins with the Inuits and the Aztecs, and then Whoa. put forth the idea of the Bering Strait being frozen, and that's how Asian peoples got into the sure. continent. And if I remember my undergrad anthropology correctly, it's not a <laughs> perfect theory, right? but I was pretty shocked that it was around 1880. <laughs> Really? I just, I could not imagine that people were dealing with it at that time, really critically, given how race was structured at that time. Is that, I don't know, is that theory still prevalent? Or is it one of those, like, we don't have a better theory, but there's a lot of problems with it? Like, where does that stand in modern? So what I remember from my undergrad archaeology courses was that the Bering Strait theory is very prevalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, mm. There is archaeological evidence that there were people there even before that influx came. So it might have sure. been a big one, but it wasn't the first. And so it's still a mystery how hmm. people got around. There's lots of ways it could have been done, but there's nothing right. so concrete that is able to say, this is how it happened. Fair enough. But so anyway, back to this pamphlet, which I thought was really interesting. He talks about the Bering Strait theory and then tackles this comparative religion by supporting the theory by laying out all the commonalities in belief and practice among the Aztecs and other Native Americans, and then comparing all that to Egyptian peoples and the Far East. So he'd lay out like the Neches and the Pars, they worship the sun and keep sacred fire perpetually burning, or young Chippewas like Hindus and Siamese ascetics. They retire to the forest and fast in an attempt to conjure up their protecting spirits. Mm. And then he'd put side by side the Zunis and the crescent moon of Eastern creeds, as he described it, and sort of laying out these two things, which, okay. Mm. <laughs> well... To, to some extent, isn't any human faith system going to have commonalities, especially like pre-contact when everyone's relatively tribal and there's not like transcontinental travel? You're, you're going to look at the natural world and find ways to reconcile that, right? Probably. I thought it was pretty compelling for 1880 in its context, even though at the, sure. by the end of reading, and I was like, all right, this looks like the red string meme from It's Always Sunny. <laughs> Sylvia, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so he's that's sort of his mindset again before they're leaving. Now we left them as just they were getting on the steamship to head to London before they would then go on to India. And I don't remember if you fully explained. He's got a presidential commission. He's got a job. Like this is official. What is her relationship? Like I know they're chums, and I know he's not threatening suicide to get her to marry him. Like like some people. <laughs> But does does is he like sub appointing her as like part of his presidential cadre? Like what's the So he was the president of the Theosophical Society and I think she was mm -hmm. a secretary or she had some role. But his presidential job is a little bit like getting paid on commission. You have the title, but there's no guarantee of income unless you make it happen. Make what happen? Trade deals, business ventures. Spoiler alert, they ha are pretty tight for money the first year. So he's being paid like pre-LinkedIn to just build networks on behalf of America. He's being allowed to build networks with this presidential letter and mm. will only get paid when they're successful. Interesting. That's, I mean... Yeah, <laughs> I, that kind of tracks. Well, let's join them on the steamship. So on their yeah. way to Europe, leaving New York, they were on the Canada on end of the mm. year 1878. And 
HPB spent a lot of time arguing with Anglican clergymen about Christianity. Oh, man. So there's like missionaries or something on the boat. Mm hmm. <laughs> and they're just locked on for this, what, three month trip or whatever? I think it was faster, but they're going to London yeah. first. And so they get to okay. London and they have a week long layover and they're staying with a couple, Dr. and Mrs. Billing. And Mrs. Billing is a noted medium at the time. And it's via her that Alcott has another encounter with. The Masters. Right, the Masters. So this is from Gary Lachman's book. Alcott had another encounter with the Masters, walking in a heavy fog with two other theosophists. Alcott suddenly found himself looking into the eyes of a tall Hindu. Back at Norwood Park, he discovered that the same Hindu had paid a visit to his chum, although the front door was locked and bolted. That afternoon, Mrs. Billing was surprised to find an Indian gentleman in the hallway asking to see Madame Blavatsky. When Mrs. Billing opened the door to her room, he saluted HPV by placing his palms together, and the two conversed in a strange language. So an Indian dude came to visit HPV, and this is mystical for some reason? It's mystical because the masters, which are the source of all kind of her knowledge and her right spiritual hookup are really considered to be real people and they're real people that have crossed their paths they're incorporated beings not angels they're not angels it's not a spirit it's not an energy they're really considered by alcott and through other people in this case also mrs billing to be a real dude so it's almost like a secret society and every once in a while you meet one in the flesh and he's like hey you know i, I can give you the little secret handshake or whatever I'm I'm the guy you've been getting letters from and whatever. Mm -hmm. Because also so much of this is based in letters, this physical aspect of your receiving, your mm. true connection. You're not having a telepathic download. Right. I'm getting postage, baby. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's almost mundane and how tangible it is. And that's what makes it also, I think, very real. Because it feels like not something you're signing up to believe so much as, oh, these guys are out there, the secret the secret knowledge is there, and I'm now a part of it. Remind me, did the masters introduce themselves? Or was this something they discovered and then they got in contact with them somehow? So the masters are kind of come with HPB. So she claims that she's known them since girlhood. One of them saved her from that horse accident. And <laughs> right. over her travels, she's met them in person at different times. And they have some names, but I've, I've left them off for simplicity's sake because they're kind of all the same. Sure. And by being her devotee, in a way, Alcott can have contact with them through letters. Mm -hmm. So they get on their second steamship to Mumbai. Here, it's called Bombay and all the stuff, but I'm just sticking with modern names. And sure. it sounds like they had a really terrible trip. <laughs> Were they ill? HPB injures her knee. So she's, mm. and she's in poor health, remember. She's a large lady. She's got edema. Everything's melting. And she's grouchy. She's punching darts. Yeah. And then everyone, everyone gets seasick. That's. Is that typical? I feel like you don't hear about people getting seasick a lot during this time. I don't think it's everybody getting seasick, but <laughs> when they yeah, fair. when they finally get to India, we have this theatrical scene where Alcott straight up kisses the ground. Really? <laughs> it's considered through one lens to be respect, like this respect of the land and devotion. Fair. I also think it's straight up relief. Yeah, yeah. So they meet their host, this guy named Hari Chun Chintaman, and he's been writing them since they've been in New York and urging mm. them to come. 
So he's part of the correspondence network that Alcott's got going on. So he asked uh, Harry Chen to set him up in a modest house with a minimum number of servants, which might sound really <laughs> might sound really pish posh now, but it makes a lot of sense in the context of then, where they're like, "Hey, we need to get our household running. We have to have the society, but let's do it as cheaply as possible." Sure. So he sets them well first. Their arrivals covered in the newspaper. This isn't cloak and dagger. It's a thing that they're coming. Because they're part of society and it's like, oh, this big name is arriving in town. Like, Yeah, they're a known entity. They're somewhat above the hoi polloi. Yeah. And I thought that this part of the experience you would really smile over given our mutual experiences in, in Asia. Uh, they end up being given one of Hurchin's own houses and... It lacks, as Lachman describes it, practically all Western amenities. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about Which, right. I mean, for 1879, to be even mentioned, how bad must it have been? <laughs> I mean, when in Rome, right? And then Hurrichen hosts them for a huge reception with 300 people. They're dragged to a whirlwind of events including this great feast for so-called Shiva's night. Then they're touring caves. Visitors are coming and asking blessings. They're giving lectures. They're talking about all sorts of stuff. Harijan gives them a huge speech. And then here's the kicker. The next day, after this whirlwind of stuff, Harijan gives them the bill. Oh, boy. <laughs> so they thought they were just being like treated. And it's like, I'm showing off my neighborhood. I'm showing off you to my friends. Like we're all we're all just rubbing elbows. <clears throat> it's the bill for everything for the party, the dinner, even the cost of the telegram he sent them. Oh my god! And eventually, HPB just reads him the riot act, and he rescinds it. But he ends up kicked out of the society later on. Huh. Okay. But rough start. Rough start to. So wait, was he scamming them the whole time? Like, did he just think, I can draw them in? Or was this like a polite misunderstanding? They had sent money to somewhere and it didn't quite go through, but he seemed to hmm. know he was being a bit shady. This bad start. And needless to say, they yeah. move into a different house. Right, right, right. So there's several things going on in these early, early days in India. One, Alcott is seeing more and more evidence of the master's. And yet they're still out of reach. He still doesn't feel like he truly knows them, but has more confirmation to himself that these guys are real. They're out there. And they're they're there in bigger numbers? More frequency, let's say. So okay. slightly different guys, more frequency. And mysterious things. And he's not quite clear enough to kick an answer out of HPB. So he's still figuring it all out. And while I'm going to say, yes, the spiritual path is personal, it's embracing mystery, it's awakening. I also think it's a little bit like understanding financial products. They say don't invest in anything you don't understand. And yeah. I would say don't go down the spiritual path of something that fundamentally confuses you. Right. Don't 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 focus only on the attractive bits or the reassuring bits, but actually read a book, as one might say. Like a sense of awe, wonder, divinity, yes. But feeling confusion, especially after so many years, just don't go just don't go further down the path that confuses you. Because I think there's a natural inclination to want to know more and then I'll discover right. more and then I'll get it. And I don't think that leads anywhere you want to go. So Alcott is starting to realize maybe 
or we are starting to realize he's not there yet, that he's kind of in a loot box system where he's like, another one, another one. And, and summing up his mystical experiences are difficult because fundamentally describing mystical experiences is boring. We've covered this, but it's you want to give a sense of what the parameters are. So I'll describe one to you that Alcott, uh, pardon me, Lachman relayed in the book. Mm. At the Carly Caves, HBB had to be carried up the steep hill. The heat and effort were too much for her. Inside the elaborately decorated temples, the group had a picnic, and Blavatsky told them of secret passageways that led to a hidden inner sanctum where the masters still resided. Shortly after, the assistants went to purchase more provisions, and HBB and Alcott were left alone. Then HBB told Alcott to turn his back. He heard a loud thud, like a slamming door, and then his chum's piercing laugh. HBB had vanished. Sometime later, she reappeared and explained that she'd passed through one of the secret doors and had been in conference with the masters within. The next day, after a night of sleeping on the temple porch, she announced that the masters had told her telepathically that they wanted to go north to Rajputana in Punjab. Back in Kandala, HBB was worried that Rosa Bates and Mr. Wimbridge, who were keeping house for them, would think that they were heading off on holiday while using the masters as an excuse and wished that the masters' request had come in a more concrete form, a telegram, <laughs> to be exact. And on the train... She wrote a note to the effect, asking the master's telegrapher friends in, in Mumbai to make things official. As she was about to toss the note out of the window, Alcott grabbed it to make sure it wasn't simply a blank piece of paper. She then let it go, and when they reached Mumbai, they discovered that at two that afternoon, Mrs. Bates had signed for a telegram sent to Alcott by a Gulab Singh, a character in Blavatsky's From the Caves and Jungles of Hindustan book, and the message said, simply said, Rajputana, start immediately. That was very loaded. Yeah. So she she played a disappearing act in these tunnels while they were alone, just cackling the whole time, presumably after smoking her way up this thing on a palanquin or something. And then he's like, you know, if, if we're going to go on this trip, I really need to know we're going to have some creature comforts. So she folds up a note into a paper airplane and throws it out a moving train. And apparently it was received. There's a bunch of stories like this where she's essentially throwing something out the window. A telegram shows up somewhere else. There was a huge long section taking one of these telegram instances and breaking it down how it would have actually been impossible for her to get the information and send it in time. And there's some mystery about how that all worked. Mm, <laughs> that sounds a little... A little shell gamey, but... It does. But the fact that no one's figured out exactly how she did it is the thing that's... Like, oh, this is weird. But you see how he got pulled in deeper because there's no clear answers for him. I mean, <laughs> no clear answers for <clears throat> what might be the most mundane part of their story, though. <laughs> it's like, how did you phone ahead to let them know we'd be coming? Not, why are you sneaking around in a cave and, like, giggling while you're hidden in a wardrobe or something? Well, it's the most mundane part of their story, but it's the thing that anchors their belief because it feels in the here and now. All right. <laughs> anyway, but... I'm going to take you down a little side alley of what's happening to the chums in this time period and tell you about my theory about how theosophy got pretty apolitical. So one source called it the myth of why the Theosophical Society is apolitical, but it strikes me as pretty solid reasoning, and you'll see why. So from the second they arrive in British India, they are under surveillance. 
by the colonial powers that be? Exactly. They were a known okay. entity when they arrived in India, and they didn't do the dumb thing of clearly aligning themselves with the British ruling class. They didn't stop off at the government house. They didn't uh-huh. call on the places where white visitors usually did in our version of living in Asia. They didn't go to the right bars and meet right. the right people. And so they immediately also start opening doors to this myriad of locals and holy men, and they're not fully embracing local culture. They're existing in some weird in-between, and it's making mm-hmm. their ruling class and the government uncomfortable. So the British are watching them. Then the chums start going around India and meeting swamis and doing lectures, and they're being obviously surveilled to the point mm-hmm. where it's, well, it's whatever men in black suits of 1881 yeah. was. A fedora. At one point, apparently yeah. in Agra, Blavatsky straight up thanked them for being their escort in this yeah. over-her-shoulder kind of way. And... Also, money is very tight. And so this you and I have seen this trap before. You supposedly go to a place that's a lot cheaper, but in order to maintain your relative quality of life, it ends up costing the same, if not more. Mm-hmm. And the dream of being supported by acolytes is not happening. So what yeah. do they do? The chums have to start writing freelance articles, HBB for Russian-speaking periodicals and Alcott for American ones. And this isn't new because before they left New York – Alcott had apparently written some really aggressive articles against the British in India, just highly critical of their rule, calling the locals an unwilling people in bondage, and explicitly stating that more rebellions like the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857 would happen again. And I will grossly, grossly oversimplify it by saying it was very bad and very significant to the history of the British in India. But this seemed to ring alarm bells for when they finally arrived back in India. One can imagine. Well, that's also typical colonial projection where like the the locals are finding this nationalist identity and being like, this isn't right. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't love how this is working. She can read the writing on the wall. And the British are like, she's inciting this. Right? Yeah, that's actually incredibly insightful of you. But then once he gets to India and he's writing these articles to like make some dough, he goes completely in the other direction. He adopts a lot of stereotypical colonial attitudes about the local population. He writes about snake charmers, serpent worship, how vegetarianism is unmanly. And he writes just more positive of British rule. There's no way another rebellion will ever happen. Their education system's awesome. And this helps, but the surveillance doesn't let up until Alcott just breaks down the door, so to speak, of the American consul. They gets an actual sit-down interview with the governor of India, a Sir Richard Temple. And I imagine, waves around his presidential letter, and mm-hmm. they have they talk about something. They talk about what theosophy is. And when he leaves that meeting, then the order goes out to drop the surveillance. If I'm reading between the lines correctly, he went in there, presented himself as a kook, like, written by the president. And they were like, oh, you're not here to incite, like, an anti-colonial rebellion. You're kind of a goof. And if you go around letting yourself be quasi taken advantage of by, you know, these local swamis and their whatever managers, that's not really a problem for Britain. I think he framed what the Osphia was all about. I think he gave them the pitch and how it was nothing had nothing to do with colonial rule. It's this comparative religion. We're interested in studying this stuff. And here's what I'm really doing to make money allegedly U.S. trade stuff. And I think he also gave assurances that it wouldn't be political. How how widely read were they being 
Well, they'll at get this time because that's now that... is the early days. They haven't even set up okay. some of the stuff that's coming. But I think this change is this root of keeping it as it doesn't always stay apolitical. And I'll get into all kinds of actions in that later. But as far as their identity in India, the role of the Theosophical Society, it, it's not an activist organization. Right. And they're not proselytizing because that's not what the Theosophical Society is. Mm -mm. They're partly learning and partly genuinely networking, maybe not with movers and shakers, but with Hindu and Buddhist thought leaders. Yeah. And it seems no different than if someone went to China now and had to get past the government there. It's like, oh, nothing to do. We're not raising any awareness. Yeah. We're not doing anything like that. And so I think that stuck as far as the organizational culture. Huh. That's pretty slick. Okay. So I mentioned that they're always worried about money in these first couple of years. Yeah. And during the summer of 1879, Alcott's attempting to control the damage of this whole spy controversy and his own prospects are just going down the tubes. In July 22nd, he gets a letter from one of the other guys from the Theosophical Society, William Q. Judge, informing him that he'd been bilked out of a $10,000 fee in an Albany insurance case and his investment in a Venezuelan silver mine had gone sour. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. And so then, just desperate to make money, he starts a monthly magazine called The Theosophist to get more members, send it out, and also solving this very 1880s problem where he had too many letters to write and could not keep up with his correspondence. And so the magazine solving those issues. Is it just like an open letters, like missed connections, classifieds kind of thing? Or just like, listen, subscribe, eventually you'll get it. Well, there's some articles by leading Sinhalese Buddhist monks, and that reads people from Sri Lanka. And there's a biography of Swami Dayananda Saraswati, articles about Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, magnetism of ancient China, the gesture speech of the American Indian, the Jain view of Om, and no commentary about the British. And this is basically headquartered in Britain, mm -hmm. or in British India. Yes. And they also had to pretty early throw in the towel on learning Hindi. It was beyond <laughs> both of them. And so the Theosophist magazine becomes really targeted at the English-speaking Indian elites and the British mm. ruling class, I guess anyone else that's Anglophone at the time. And that becomes their niche. And believe it or not, it makes money. Their circulation is limited to India at this point. Yeah, but it still makes money. They get more members. It's it's the only thing because everything else Alcott touches just goes belly up or nothing happens. Huh. But they're they're pretty much only serving either the colonial occupiers or locals who are benefiting from that power structure. Yeah, the Engl anyone who speaks English, mostly elites. And right. things start to get rolling. They end up meeting the most influent the editor of the most influential English language newspaper in India called The Pioneer. And the guy's name is Alfred Percy Sinet, Sinet and he'll come back a lot. <laughs> and their paper was a big deal. And he was her first major contact in the British ruling class. He's there in. I can't believe this is actually working. And the paper was such a big deal. One of their contributing authors was Rudyard Kipling. What? Yeah. Again, another cameo. That's wild. So they they started like a weird Playboy magazine and just started getting like random contributors, correspondents, and people who are just niche thinkers and writers. And it somehow caught on. Mm -hmm. And is it being taken seriously? Like, are they seen as credible? Because they're they're writing like academic thought pieces, right? This isn't a newspaper, and it's not gossip columns. 
they're talking about the history of religious expression and language and anthropology. Well, and here's how they start to get even more of a reputation. So Sinet invites her up to Simla, Shimla. It's the it's a hill town in the north of India. Mm. And it's where all the British go during the summer. So they get up there. They meet Sinet's wife, a lady named Patience. There's no small talk. Blavatsky just refers to it as, I'm a rough old hippopotamus, and immediately starts talking about phenomenon. So Sinet's expresses that he's a little skeptical and that raps aren't a thing. <laughs> oh God. I just I'm picturing this this babushka with, you know, a cigarette in her hand. I'm a ruffled hippopotamus. <laughs> I don't know what, what accent that was, but she's pretty cosmopolitan now. Well so Sinet says, I don't know if raps are real and she says, raps are the easiest thing in the world and produces a ton. Just immediately. And out of nowhere, it's not like she's banging her head, banging her hand, banging her feet. It feels like it's immediate. Then another guy, a Mr. A.O. Hume, we'll just call him Hume. He's apparently a pro-Hindu secretary for the government who later becomes known as the father of the Indian National Congress, uh, which eventually led to Indian home, what's called home rule. I assume their independence. Right. Anyway, HPB doesn't want to produce any more phenomenon, but the, the raps continue to sound on the door, the clock. Even in her host's heads, they say. They can hear it. Okay. And apparently they felt like fate electric shocks. Now, they're quite suspicious still. What's, what is all this? And so they ask her to materialize a cigarette holder. That's not asking much, is it? And so she makes some gestures with her hand, rubs yeah. the colonel's pipe or Alcott's pipe between her hands, and then just pulls one out of her pocket. And apparently the guys were both just completely sold on the spot and very quickly became theosophists. That is the weakest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like she shows up and there you keep on saying raps and I'm like, yeah, Jay-Z, Dr. Dre. No, no, no. <laughs> You're talking about just like knocking on random surfaces, right? And they're like, I, that sounds like nonsense. And she's like, nope. Listen, things start knocking and they randomly hear it in their heads, apparently. Although they're speaking after she pulls a coin out from behind his ear and is like, <laughs> And so Sinette invites them back up to Shimla, a different event. And this is the famous brooch incident. Uh-huh. So it took place on a picnic with HPB Alcott, the Sinets, and a guy named Major Henderson, who happened to be the same guy that ordered their surveillance earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, some lady named Mr. Reed. And they're setting out. And then at the last second, they're joined by another guy, uh, Syed Mahmood, who's a district judge. And they stop for tea. And the Snet's servants are all bent out of shape because there's an extra guy and they don't have enough teacups or whatever. And so they joke, oh, maybe we'll have to share. And then someone says, why can't the madame make another one appear? Uh -huh. And after much encouragement, she's like, fine. And then she starts poking around on the ground, taps her foot, and says, Major Henderson, dig here. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... The ground's really hard. It's full of roots. We're right next to a tree. And he starts cutting down and digging. And about six inches down, in the roots, there's a cup. And it matches exactly the ones that the servants have. He digs a little further. And then there's the little saucer. Okay. <laughs> and then Speaking from experience, <laughs> digging in untouched soil that's lousy with tree roots and stuff is not easy. And if he just casually can go six inches deep... 
while they're setting up their tea party. That, to me, screams it was planted there. It was already dug up. It and was It was mentioned that it was very hard earth. It's not well toward soil by any chance. Anyway, so okay. the major's floored. He asked Blavatsky to explain, and she's like, well, I won't explain it unless you're at the Ossifist. And he's like, well, I'll join tomorrow. And she says, why not now? And then the major asks, if she, well, give me a diploma, and I'll join right away. And so she says, you shall have it. And then he points to a bush, makes him go look in the bush, and there in the bush is a diploma wrapped in twine with his name in Alcott's handwriting. <laughs> These first two episodes where you're talking about it, I'm just all my all my credulity is is just being like enhanced. I'm just like, man, I I can't see through this. There's no conventional explanation. This is so compelling. And suddenly we get to colonial India, and I'm just like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is transparently bullshit. Well, anyway, the part of the reason that this is considered the famous incident uh -huh. is that later it's confirmed that the materialized cup completely matches the Sinet's pantry, that Henderson went back and started to look for where the earth could have been disturbed, and like tries to dig under to find, and could not find how it had gotten there. So he also didn't buy it and went back to look. He dug under the hole that they exposed. He went around it. He's looking for how they could have gotten into it. And when he asks, and when he tells it to HBB and asks for another phenomenon, she just bursts into a rage. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when you ask the magician to do the trick again so you can see the sleight of hand, yeah, you're, you're going to get a little blowback. So to plant the cup of head of time, and this is what both Sinet talks about in some of his later books... And it's sort of the known narrative about the this incident. She would have had to not only spend a ton of time digging, covering her tracks, planted the items. They would have had to know they were getting there. And there were several routes they couldn't have, could have taken there. And they chose the last one at the last minute. Would have had to know that the guy was joining them when that also appeared to be last minute and random. So no. not convinced. No. I've I've heard more elaborate proposals that feel very spontaneous because you're not expecting it, but it was actually completely planned. That that laundry list of there's no way she could have. It's like, no, it would have been a little difficult and it would have looked very foolish if she had gotten caught and she pulled it off. That's what happened. So then we have another brooch incident. Get these out of the way for your incredulous you keep saying mind. brooch incident, which sounds like like a B-side to a Sherlock Holmes <laughs> short story. But this was a teacup, not a brooch. You're right. That was the teacup incident. Oops. Okay. Here's the brooch incident. <laughs> the teacup incident. Oh, God. There's two different brooch incidents. It's a lot of notes. Give me some grace here. So same group of people. They're at Hume's home for dinner. And HBB asks his wife if there's anything she wished for that she'd lost. And so Mrs. Hume describes a brooch that her mother had given her, which someone had borrowed and lost. HBB takes her hand, asks her to form a clear picture of the brooch in her mind. Then she takes two cigarette papers, wraps them around a coin, attaches it to her wristwatch, and puts it back in her dress. Then at the end of dinner, HBB says, go look inside the flower garden. And there inside of it is the brooch she lost. Mm -hmm. and, Mrs. and then later, it comes to light that the person who lost the brooch was Mrs. Hume's daughter, who had actually crossed paths with Bolotsky in Mumbai. You don't say. But how would she have known? How do you hand over an heirloom brooch to some random Russian lady? Then how do you meet her? You're not convinced of anything you're telling not me. Not even a little bit. 
I was going to say, well, clearly she had a random encounter with the person who had the brooch, somehow convinced them to hand it over or lifted it or something, knew, knew, knew whose brooch it was, and then came back and did all this smoke and mirrors to be like, oh, is there something uh, uh, small, like uh, a piece of jewelry or a fashion accessory that uh, you've been missing? No. Not even a little. I. This is literally the plot of Now You See Me, by the way. <laughs> but with a really different protagonist. Yeah. Okay. I don't even want to defend it the way I wrote in my notes, so we'll just keep going on. <laughs> I don't think it's the way you wrote it, Morgan. I think it's the way that it happened. <laughs> And after afterwards, of course, the people who were taken in are going to tell the story to be like, I know what you're thinking. She did the most obvious thing, but actually she didn't. It's like, yeah, no, she 100% did. Well, Sinek gets so taken in and writes about it so much in the paper that his editors in London have to tell him to cool it or he's going to get fired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Enough with the brooch and the teacup. A, and yeah. then there, so this was the second brooch incident. At another point in his house, his wife misses a brooch and shows up inside one of their throw pillows. Yeah. Of course it does. Did Blavatsky wrap something else in cigarette paper there? Or was she just sitting Honestly, in the corner did. in a cloud of smoke? <laughs> Maybe check it. Throw a pillow. Yeah. And so here also we start to see the masters beginning to interact with other people besides Alcott, namely Sinet and Hume. Mm-hmm. And there's this incident when they're in the northern north part of India with one of these... I'll say recent converts, a guy named W.T. Brown from the University of Glasgow. And Alcott receives a visit while sleeping in his tent from one of the masters. And the master apparently placed his hand over Alcott, closed his fingers around his palm. And when Alcott turns around, boom, letter. And this was confirmed by Brown. And another guy visiting them also said, yeah, there's a weird random dude here. And they were all convinced, the three the three guys on this tour, that they'd seen a master in the flesh. And so then Sinet wants to talk to the masters more and more. He's like, I want to talk to these guys. Don't want to keep talking to Blavatsky. And Blavatsky says, yes, you can write them a letter. And then between 1880 and 1885, Sinet receives over 1,300 pages of eloquent handwritten letters called the Mahatma letters. Uh-huh. And you can actually read these. Different masters wrote in different ink. The contents go over esoteric philosophy. And he turned it into a book. There's there's a book of the actual letters. Sinet wrote a book called Esoteric Buddhism, which influenced people like Rudolf Steiner, W.B. Yeats. And there's a lot of debate about how much actual Buddhism is in it. But uh-huh. I tried to find a selection to share with you. And they are just so boring. I, <laughs> I couldn't even find... A little cutesy thing that I thought it reads like people's overly like, polite flirtation texts. Like it's so oh. el- elaborate, and yet, what is the what is the point of all this? And it was really hard to find a selection. But yes. but here's what would I got. You compare it. Would you compare it to James Joyce? Mm. Because that's how you described Blavatsky's first book, and this sounds. A lot like she just went around getting like Mumbai slumdog millionaire guys and was like, go put your hands on this dude in a tent. Don't say anything. Just stare at him. And then I'll write him letters. Like she's ghostwriting a book with extra steps. Well, here's some of the text from letter 10. 10 out of 145, mind you. Right. The idea of God is not an innate but an acquired notion. And we have but one thing in common with theologies. We revel in the infinite. But while we assign to all the phenomena that proceed from the infinite and limitless space, duration, emotion, material, natural, sensible, and known, to us at least, causes, the theists assign them spiritual, supernatural, and unintelligible power. 
Unlutgaro, as Dolbach expressed it, a power which has never yet manifested itself. Our chief aim is to deliver humanity of this nightmare, to teach man virtue for its own sake, to walk in line relying on himself instead of leaning on a theological crutch that for countless ages was the direct cause of nearly all human misery. Mm-hmm. What do you think? She's doing a pen and teller. <laughs> like, she's showing up being like, this is bullshit. This is how they do it. Now watch this. So when Alcott started getting letters, I mentioned that it was like weird and not completely plausible. And the same thing starts happening with the Mahatma letters. They show mm-hmm. up on Sinet's desk while he's in other cities. It, it randomly... <laughs> They randomly start appearing and you can't make any sense of it. Mm-hmm. Which is the most British thing ever. It's like, it wasn't it wasn't delivered by the mailboy. I didn't have to tip for it. This was preposterous. <laughs> and so there's still a lot of debate about how she did the letters. Or rather, it endured past her death. In the 1930s, there was a book called Did Madame Blavatsky Forge the Mahatma Letters? And another called Who Wrote the Mahatma Letters? <laughs> These were two books? Yeah. People wrote entire books being like, did this random lady plant letters? This prolific writer who's making all of her money by being close to other powerful people or by writing Russian language articles on theosophy and esoteric religions and maybe some of the problems with organized religion. Did she forge letters covering the same thing? Is there a better explanation? I mean, Lockman gave a breakdown of different tactics that could have been at play here if we're assuming a mm. mystical method by location, materialization, translocation, but none of that seems solid, so we're just not going to get into it. And it does line up with what we described earlier as Blavatsky's ultimate vision of having this trickle-down effect of secret knowledge to people mm. that were in her you know, cabal. And But here's where the Mahatma letters get HPV into the most hot water. They move to a city called Adyar, where the Theosophical Society is still today. It's outside of Chennai mm. in southern India. And the household, there's a couple called the Kulams. And Blavatsky had known the wife when they were in Cairo, when she was doing the somewhat fraudulent seances mm. back in the day. And she had the wife, Emma, build a shrine that was in this cordoned off area where the masters are supposed to go. So it looked like, I imagine, like a P.O. box for the secret masters. Mm -hmm. And that's where the letters, that's where things supposedly go in and out. Mm -hmm. And it's also where blackmail comes in. Wait, what? Is is that blackmail? Like she found black? So first of all, Sinet's main letters didn't come from the shrine. And in 1884, Blavatsky leaves India because her health is just totally bad and it sounds like she was (laughs) melting like the wicked witch of the west yeah she would be and so she left behind her household and the board for control for the theosophical society that alcott had set up because at this time he sort of split and we'll get into that later so blavatsky completely snubs emma coulomb on her way out she doesn't give her any money and doesn't give her a loan she wants actually blocks her from getting a loan from some rich dude that was in their circle and does not put her on the board of control but yet she's still in charge of the household stuff. And the Coulombs had been born really wealthy and just fallen on such hard times even before they got to Blavatsky. But then they made themselves indispensable to her. And they apparently were so heinously unpleasant to have around that once HPV was gone, one of the guys on the board of control, a German-American named Franz Hartmann, offered a share in a Colorado gold mine if the Coulombs would just leave and move there instead. Damn. 
But the Kulum started waving around letters that supposedly exposed Blavatsky as a fraud and had evidence of how she did everything. And they wanted thousands of rupees as a payout in addition to the silver mine. And HBB cables back, calling their bluff, and they get formally ousted. And then the Kulums show the border control the occult, what's called the occult room, this little shrine place for the masters, where there's a lot of evidence the husband had made sort of improvements or made additions to make it look even more fake than it had been. So, for example, things could open, uh, but it made so much noise that someone absolutely would have noticed. Right, right, <laughs> so right. made it even more janky. And the theory is that the Coulombs had done that after the fact to further incriminate yeah. Blavatsky. So anything the Coulombs say is pretty tainted. But is it all completely tainted? And mm-hmm. But the Board of Control immediately just rips the thing out of the wall and plasters over it. <laughs> So, so so meanwhile, in England, Blavatsky had just has just Kool-Aid men stormed into a meeting to elect new officers to the London Lodge in the Theosophical Society. <laughs> and a, in a cloud of smoke. <laughs> yeah. Cigarette papers just flying just in her way. Coming through a wall. And Sinet was there because he'd been sent back to England by this time for being just too into her. And <laughs> And he was silently freaking out because he was not sure how European society would handle Blavatsky. And uh-huh. HBB like shouts down some member about something or other. The conflict's not super important for the purposes of our narrative, other than Blavatsky's being just a real difficult lady. And one mm-hmm. of the guys watching it all unfold, sort of in the audience of this meeting, is a guy named F.W.H. Myers. And he put Alka and HPB on the to-be-investigated list for the Society for Psychical Research. I'm sorry, what? Run that by me again? So at this meeting for this London Lodge for the Theosophical Society, just watching Blavatsky have a a shouting match with some lady about some theosophical thing is a guy who says, these people are really suspicious. I'm going to go back to my organization, the Society for Psychical Research, which is all about debunking you know, yeah. false mediums and things like that, and, and puts a target on Alcott and Blavatsky to be investigated. Is he privy to the kind of overstated attempt to debunk her that happened in her wake in India? We'll get there. Okay. So initially, Alcott sits down to lunch with the SPR and thinks they're friendly and doesn't see him as a threat. And HPB rolls, essentially rolls her eyes and calls them the Spookical Research Society. But in May of 1884, the SPR forms a committee and they start gathering evidence and interviewing members. And in June, Alcott testifies to his experiences of meeting the masters. And HPB is so pissed off that she just rips him a new one for exposing the masters to the masses. And that's this crux of her contention about it. Now the masters are becoming mundane and tainted. You're ruining the Uh access point and Uh debasing the name. And she's angry later at Sinet's book for the same reason, for outing the masters. And then there's a meeting between HPB and a guy named Professor Henry Sidgwick. He's the president of the SPR. And that apparently went well. In his journal, Sidgwick wrote that his favorable impression of Madame Blavatsky was maintained, calling her a genuine being with a real desire for the good of mankind. And also commenting on her flounces full of cigarette ashes. <laughs> <laughs> there is the tough old hippo, yeah. And in another meeting with her, the members of the committee hear astral bells, and there's a sense that she could be legit, despite Alcott's what was called Alcott's terrible testimony. 
But then the Coulombs go to the press in India. In September of that year, an article comes out detailing how the masters and HPV are all fraudulent, written by a reverend. <laughs> oh. And this gets picked up by the London Times. Mm-hmm. And then HPV and Olcott have to race back to India separately, whatever that means for 1884 transportation. But when they get there, they discover that the SPR had already dispatched a guy, Richard Hodgson, to investigate them. And he'd been in India already for like a while. And his report doesn't come out till 1885, but he bought the Coulomb's claims hook, line, and sinker and called HPV one of the most accomplished, ingenious, and interesting imposters in history. And she's most likely a Russian spy. That was also included in his report. What? Wait. But everyone that had ever been in her corner was like, how can this lady be a spy? She's the most unspy-like person we have. (laughs) It's the ultimate cover. And then people start coming out against her. And anyone that the Esophical Society starts to see as a liability. And Mm -hmm. she says, go back to Europe and get out of here. And Alcott stays in India. And she goes back to Europe branded as a fraud. So if I were to summarize this... She was chilling around the world, learning a lot of tricks of spiritual mediums, went to the U.S., made a big name for herself having kind of spiritualist parties, but also doing a lot more academic pontificating and kind of trying to connect it to science and connect it to religion and kind of being like, I want to tear down the walls of all these exclusive societies and hierarchies. Went to India and found a fairly ready audience that maybe hadn't been through the spiritualist ringer quite the same way. And so she was suddenly really back on board with playing these parlor tricks and getting people on board. And she burned a few people, but they they didn't want to look like fools, but they also didn't know how to explain how she did her tricks. So they tried to out her and did a bad job of it. And then a society that did actually know how the tricks work, like the actual Penn and Teller Society, went down there and they were like, okay, hang on. <laughs> Let's let's unpack what was actually going on here. But beyond that, it sounds like a lot of people, like I, were taken in by... She doesn't seem to be trying to make a lot of money off of the tricks. And she does seem to genuinely want to build this quasi-egalitarian transnational society. So even if she is a fraud, the means are justified by the ends. Because she's got this vision for academic exchanges of spiritual theological ideas. Well, here's a little wrench in just the tail part of your theory. Okay. So the report from Hodgson and the SPR comes out in 1885 and Mm. later analysis revealed that it was full of bias, research flaws, prejudice, omissions, and the spy claim was Mm. just absolutely bogus. And in 1986, the SPR genuinely retracted it. A hundred years later, they retracted their debunking of Blavatsky. And they didn't reissue any conclusions. And they only came out and said that Hodgkin's work as an investigator was biased and flawed. So it's not that his conclusions were wrong, but that his methodology wasn't like consistent with the scientific method for debunking. And so HBB bounces around Europe working on her last book, The Secret Doctrine. And what it sounds like She's really grumpy this whole time. She's staying with people in Italy, Germany. Mm-hmm. It's, again, like those early years, just a wild travelogue that would be a laundry list of places. And she gets back to London in May 1887. And I love Lachman's description of this. The London Blavatsky sailed to in May 1887 was the London of gaslight, 
Queen Victoria, Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. And shortly after she arrived, Jack the Ripper. Oh, God. Her health was not good. And at Dover, after the crossing from Ostend, she had to be carried out of the cabin and onto the train. HPV wasn't the only thing that had to be carried. The growing manuscript of the secret doctrine, which at this point was three foot high stack of densely written pages. I love him comparing the self-described tough old hippo to the, to the weight and magnitude of her magnum opus. So the book didn't get published till the following year in 1888, in October, and This becomes the deep foundational text for theosophy and is seen as something you can't just read, but you have to study. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to give you a little summary about what it's about. And again, I couldn't. I finding (laughs) finding a way to summarize this stuff means figuring out what it's saying and cut the fluff. Like that's how you summarize anything. And I could not grasp the thread to do a decent job while actually still saying something. So I rooted Mm -hmm. around and I found some of the ways theosophist websites describe the secret doctrine. And it's also echoed in an article by a guy named Bertram Cately, who said at the time in his article, The Secret Doctrine, when studied thoroughly, but not treated as a revelation, when understood and assimilated, but not made a text or dogma, HPB's secret doctrine will be found of incalculable value and will furnish suggestions, clues, and threads of guidance for the study of nature and humanity, such as no other existing work can supply. That's pretty generous. Is that a contemporary review or is that long after the fact? Contemporary of her time. And that name comes in for a fun cameo in a little bit. So then the Theosophical Society in America breaks it down as, what is then the secret doctrine? This must be our first question, if we are to find in the book those suggestions, clues, and threads of guidance, they quote Katie, that will aid us in our quest for truth. HBB herself indicated that the written pages contain only a small fragment of the esoteric doctrine known to the most advanced members of our species. It contains, as she pointed out, all that can be given out to the world in this century. And she adds concerning the secret archaic doctrine that it will be centuries before much more is given out. Yet we must also remember that HBB warned us that her work contained many lines or statements that cannot be taken as literal or complete, so it often conceals as much as it reveals. Sounds like a middle schooler writing a poem and everyone's like, oh, that's so great. And then they read it and they're like, this is pretty weird and maybe badly written. And the kid's like, it's super deep. And if you don't get it, then I guess you're just not deep enough to get it. Well, the book, so the first part of the book. The first volume is called Cosmogenesis, and it concerns how the universe came to be. And the second is called Anthropogenesis, and it deals with the origins of humanity. And here are what they identify the theosophists themselves as the three fundamental propositions. Hmm. An omnipresent, internal, boundless, and immutable principle on which all speculation is impossible, since it transcends the power of human conception, and could only be dwarfed by any human expression or similitude. But once we pass In thought from this, absolute negation, duality supervenes in the contrast of spirit and matter, subject and object. Sounds like one of the laws of physics. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It's just always there and changes form. Then the next principle. The eternity of the universe in toto as a boundless plane, periodically the playground of numerous universes incessantly manifesting and disappearing. This second assertion of the secret doctrine is the absolute universality of the law of periodicity, flux, reflux, ebb and flow, all physical science and departments of nature. 
I mean, that's that's a lot of coloring outside the lines, but that's still just inertia and chaos theory, right? And then the last one, the fundamental identity of all souls with the universal oversoul, the latter being itself an aspect of the unknown root and the obligatory pilgrimage for every soul through the cycle of incarnation in accordance to the cyclical and karmic law. <laughs> I'm, born. I'm born. I die. I live again. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing to note is she quotes this whole other language throughout the book and something called the Book of Dizon that's presented as like the secret tome that many now think was just a proxy for her own ideas. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of accusations of plagiarism that I think comes back to this issue of who really were the masters and is it just a vehicle for adding validity to her perspective? You know, a way to make her ideas stick. Yeah. That... That's weird that they would accuse her of plagiarism when it sounds like the mission statement from the beginning was Mm -hmm. to take the most cogent and useful ideas from a lot of different philosophies and kind of organize and exchange them. Is she claiming those as her own when she's like, I went and studied Buddhism and there's some compelling stuff in Buddhist thought? The way it read to me was that there were some contemporary books that came out around that time Mm. where some passages looked mighty similar. And the idea being that she might have read something and then plunked it in with this larger amalgamation. Fair. Not not the most compelling <laughs> accusation against her, but, but also, plausible. those books are massive. So it's like, hey, copied something here or there. You know, where else are you getting all this stuff? Yeah. But I, I can't go into all these ideas because they're so difficult to even grasp. Right. And I'll show you the problem with that because it's not a full discussion of a Blavatsky and her ideas if we don't touch on her ideas of what's called root races and Arianism and how that trickled down to influence 20th century race ideology in a bad way. There's a good way? (laughs) So my understanding of it is she introduces this concept of root races as a way of further specifying the course of how the human soul evolved by combining new idea of Darwinism with this physical and spiritual evolution of prehistoric people. So they lived in places like Atlantis, Lemuria, and the first root race, for example, at the time that the earth is starting to cool, is considered ethereal and reproduces like an amoeba. Okay. Then the second one is the Hyperboreans who lived in the northern part of the world when it was a jungle. And the word Hyperborean is also found in Greek mythology. And these people produced by budding or asexual splitting. Then the third is called the Lemurians, and the fourth is the Atlanteans, and the fifth is the Aryans. And they're all sort of associated with like a place on the globe in this prehistoric time and conflated with both real ancient peoples that lived uh-huh. and you know modern ones. And I find this whole structure, and this isn't the only place I've seen this, alternate prehistoric people theory. I just find it really messy and bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same page. And Blavatsky ties physical and spiritual aspects to race, which feels icky and bad, but it's also very much of the time period and evolution. And there's an extremely complicated Wikipedia article about this stuff. And I don't get what the benefit is of this type of classification because it's not tracing ideas and it's not really talking about spiritual evolution in the truest sense. It's like an alternate human history of how Mm. things came to be with just zero benefits and all the harm. I mean, it it does sound again like she's sort of cherry picking from things that are 
popular or becoming popularized the same way that she kind of went, I can kick a table and convince people that it's magic and I can I can pay someone to knock on the wall while we're in there because servants don't exist to British nobility. So they're going to think it's spirits. And she's she's cottoned on to this and has some form of uh, photographic memory. So she's she's being exposed to these ideas that maybe she doesn't fully understand, but she remembers bits of it well enough to kind of weave that into this glorious tapestry of incoherent nonsense. And the original way Arian is framed is as having originated in Atlantis 10,000 years ago. And in her era, Arian's also used to describe this European root language, because they just discovered or relatively recently discovered that Indo-European languages came from the same source. That's that was a new idea? So here's an excerpt from one of the Mahatma letters to Sinet. Ah. Letter 23b. Yes, the fifth race, ours, began in Asia a million years ago. What is it about for the 998,000 years preceding the last 2,000? A pertinent question, offered moreover in quite a Christian spirit that refuses to believe that any good could ever come out of from anywhere before and save Nazareth. I told you before now that the highest people now on earth, spiritually, belong to the first sub-race of the fifth root race, and those are the Aryan Asiatics, the highest race, physical intellectuality, is the last sub-race of the fifth, yourselves, the white conquerors. Jesus Christ. (laughs) So it sounds like, sometimes it sounds like she's using race in place of species, Mm -hmm. which would be like scientifically recognized, like Homo erectus, Homo sapien, whatever. I'm on board with that. But sometimes she's using race in what sounds like a very 19th century colonial mindset that sort of justifies what looks a whole lot like basic human cruelty and subjugation. And she's trying to justify it. Yeah, so it's not as simple as saying Blavatsky originated the term Aryan and how it got used, because she didn't. This crazy complex source material for this word is what she provided. And it got cherry-picked and churned through the mill and Mm -hmm. taken down and sort of pushed through different thought thinkers and becomes this unfortunate branch of the philosophical tree. Well, that also makes a ton of sense because she as a person is incredibly charismatic and compelling. Her entire life story lends itself to that. But as good as her memory is and as intelligent as she seems to be, she is not eloquent on paper. No. I don't know what she was writing in Russian, but it sounds like... She's got a lot of ideas and she can't express them clearly or fluently. So she's writing gibberish and people who knew her are like, no, this is really deep. It's just hard to sift through because it's so profound. And it's like, no, it's badly written and there may be nothing there. So naturally, other minds would cherry pick ideas and then put it into a more eloquent context and, you know, invade Poland. So get ready for this cameo. Mm hmm. One of HPV's visitors in this last part of her life when she's in London, Mahatma Gandhi. No, absolutely not. In 1889, when he's studying law in London in his phase of embracing English culture, these two theosophist guys, the Cateleys, who I quoted earlier, he called them the theosophist brothers, but really they were uncle and nephew. They introduced him to the Bhagavad Gita, which Gandhi at that point in time admitted he'd never actually read. And... He be, and of course, it became so deeply influential in his life. That's where the origin of the nonviolent philosophy came from, was from the Gita. And at that point, he, my cursory reading of this is that he was rejecting 
local his own culture in favor of embracing English culture. That's why he was there. And so they take him to visit HPB. And he joined the as an associate of the London Lodge a year later and kept up with theosophy his whole life. Mahatma Gandhi joined the Theosophist Society. And he called Theosophy Hinduism at his best. And totally randomly, some of his last words in 1948 were on Theosophy. That Theosophy is Hinduism in theory, and Hinduism is Theosophy in practice, which I don't fully agree with based on what I do know about Hinduism, but I find it fascinating that he thought so. Well, again, this this kind of speaks to like the tenets of Theosophy are not very exclusionary, if anything, the opposite. And so it makes sense that any academic with a strong faith, you know, practice in their life would would stumble across this and be like, different people from different backgrounds, exchanging ideas, looking for a deeper truth. And if, if you primarily identify as Christian or Hindu or something, you would want that to reflect the best parts of anything like this. Like, that's not a huge leap, really. But what, what, what for a cameo? Wow. That, it, it, man. And it's also, like, you even in this episode made a point to call out how Alcott is in this theosophist society, but is still kind of writing pro-colonial missives and, and seemly he still has this very problematic worldview. Like clearly Gandhi is coming up in that time and has to go through his own personal journey to get to the point where he's like, no, colonialism is bad. Wars of subjugation, which would have been the only wars he ever experienced in his lifetime. Like those are all colonial wars, essentially. Those are imperial wars. And he's like, that's that's messed up. People should have a little bit more self-determinism. They should, <laughs> you know, have a little bit more tolerance. There should be more peace in their hearts. I don't know. It's It sounds pretty compelling. And it doesn't sound like she, you know, dug up a teacup for him while he was there. So an author called B.P. Wadia wrote on how to engage with the secret doctrine. And I think this mm -hmm. section applies on for any spiritual sandbox you're going to wade into. Our task here is to study, to examine, to judge to investigate relentlessly but honestly, to believe nothing unless the proof is found, but also not to reject anything when that proof is obtained. Not by the way of phenomenon, but by that of philosophy. Not swayed by the personality, but by adhering to principles. Not by blind faith, but by illumined reasoning. Not by, arg <laughs> not by argumentation, but by med meditation. Not by foolish credulity, but by intelligent cooperation not proceeding from the teacher to the teachings, but examining the consistency, the logic, the inherent truth, the reasonableness, and the completeness of the teachings themselves. Not with a desire either to prove that she is right or to prove that she is wrong, but to find out what her teachings are. That is what is wanted. Do they solve the intricate problems which confront us? Do they illuminate our intelligence? Do they satisfy the yearnings of the human heart? Do they inspire us? to a noble life struggle, to a greater altruism, to a grander selflessness. Above all, are they in harmony with the established facts of ancient science, proven laws of ancient ethics, profound truths of ancient philosophy, and do they illumine the obscure and make known that which is unknown today, but which has been fully known in the past? I mean, what, what about for a review of a book, eh? <laughs> that was a review? <laughs> <laughs> it was about how to engage like with the secret. Yeah. It was about how to engage with the secret doctrine, but 
I mean, it was a little long in the tooth, but I do think it's a nice way of thinking about how to approach something that claims to have truth. Don't be too skeptical. Don't be gullible. Don't be pedantic. But if it feels good, lean into it. So HPV publishes another work called The Voice of Silence. That's another key text for Theosophy Today. And the main point is the contrast between two paths, the path of compassion for others and for one's own salvation. And I'm not going to go into it here. If you want to, it's very easily accessible online. But it sounds Mm -hmm. like during this time, she was writing a ton, being a grouch, Alcott's still back in India, and she's staying with theosophists, has a community around her, but she's getting attacked in the media left and right. Her health is spiraling down the drain. And in 1891, she gets the flu and dies. I was going to say, it's got to be something up her respiratory eventually. She spent 90% of her life in imitating a chimney. Her last words were to someone in her inner circle who's there when she dies. She says, the link unbroken. Do not let my last incarnation be a failure. Okay. And then she's cremated May 11th, 1893. <laughs> That's all she ever wanted. Remind me how old she was when she died. Oof. 93 from 1832 or 33. 1832. 60? She's in her 60s, yeah. Ancient for the era? For the time, that sounds pretty good, yeah. And before we do a full summary of all this stuff, we have to go back and say, what happened to Henry Steele Alcott? Yeah, we do. Because he's been in India this whole time during like peak debunking, like formalistic debunking. So we're going to have to jump back in time. I separated this out for the sake of thematic continuity. Mm -hmm. So back when they were first in India, Alcott had his first trip to Sri Lanka with Blavatsky. It was in 1880, and they officially become Buddhists, which was a big thing. They took pencil, the five precepts, at the temple of Ramayana Nikaya, and they are met by cheering crowds as they tour the island. They're the first weapon... Westerners to come and celebrate Buddhism. And there's a huge missionary complex on the island at this time. So they're seen as really reviving Buddhist faith in a way. So, or at least elevating it in contrast to these Christian overlords. And so they're, they're sort of legitimizing it by being white people who are like, no, this is legit. I'll participate. Absolutely. That's it. So Alcott starts giving speeches to packed halls. Newspapers are covering their visit. There's dances, rituals, performances in their honor. There's a whole... And it sparks a religious revival that fuels this nationalist consciousness. And Theosophy provides this major boost to Sinhalese self-esteem. And here they are, Alcott specifically inserting themselves into this, not just a discussion of ideas, but this religious social sector, because it's not just a Buddhist island, there's other sort of religious ethnic divides on it. And it's considered a hugely successful trip. Yeah, I should think so. So Alcott keeps getting into Buddhism, and he gets really fixated on this idea of educational reform as the way to raise up the local population. And he establishes something called the National Education Fund to finance Buddhist schools for Sinhalese boys and girls. And he first broaches this subject with Blavatsky, And she's all for it. But then once he's starting to make plans to actually go back to Sri Lanka without her, she does a 180. He wasn't abandoning her by any means. He set up this border control. Like he's got stuff organized as far as the Theosophical Society goes. But she does not want him to go. She demands he stays. She locks herself in her bedroom for a week. And during that time, she sends him a note saying that if you go, 
the Masterns will abandon you and they will abandon the Theosophical Society. That is a tantrum if I've ever heard one. Coming from a woman who married a guy because he threatened suicide, she is banging her fists. Well, maybe not her fists. That interrupt her smoking, but she's definitely stomping her feet. And unlike any behavior we've seen from Olka before, he calls her bluff. He stated that he's never challenged her before. Yeah. And so he he stated he did not believe them to be such vacillating, whimsical creatures and that he would go to Sri Lanka if he was meant to, and it's okay if he never sees another master again. Like that's how into this Buddhist national revival scene in Sri Lanka he is, is that he, you know, threw it in. So he gives 47 lectures on this trip. This I call it the second trip. And he produced uh-huh. a book on Buddhism called a Buddhist Catechism, which eventually goes on to have over 40 editions and is translated into 20 languages and is a really defining document as far as Alcott's Creole Buddhist faith. And uh-huh. it first appeared in both English and Sinhalese in 1881. And it's still to this day used in Sri Lankan schools. That is wild. But it, it sounds like he didn't go there... This is so interesting because for all of his writing with a very problematic colonial mindset, it sounds like he went here and was like, these people need their own schools. They need to feel empowered to just recognize their history and practice their culture. And when he's, I I wanted to ask, when he's setting up these schools, he's not setting up like colonial schools, like you have to teach English. He's he's trying to get them a form of self-representation in their own academic centers. Is that right? I'll touch on that in a moment. Like When he okay. gets back from the trip, Blavatsky acts like nothing happened. <laughs> okay. And it broke a key component of Alcott's faith in her. And he wrote, mm-hmm. Henceforward, I do not love or prize her less as a friend and a teacher, but the idea of her infallibility, if I have ever entertained it, even approximately, is gone forever. <laughs> That's very acute, yeah. He goes back the following year, so it's trip number three, and somehow he started doing his mesmeric healing again, and interest Uh explodes. Thousands of people start showing up, and the whole purpose of his tour changes. And, I mean, talking numbers here, one number from a different trip when he was in Bengal, he apparently saw 2,812 patients. One-on-one, and he's doing his animal magnetism, whatever, and there's just a line out the door and around the block. And in 1883, apparently the masters communicated to him that he had to stop for his own health, and he was pretty happy to do so. But he went gung-ho for a while. That's so wild. So all his work in Sri Lanka with the Buddhist Revival gets the attention of the British, and they're really concerned. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. The governor of Sri Lanka forwards a secret memo about a pamphlet that's circulating amongst the locals about a prophecy of the upcoming overthrowing of British rule that hinted at, if not implicated, Alcott as being a part of it. And instead of backing down from this new public role, after a really deadly Buddhist-Christian riot, a group of Sinhalese monks and laypeople cable to Alcott to come and help and he does. So he organizes the Buddhist Defense Committee, spoke directly with the governor of Sri Lanka as a broker between British rule and the Buddhist community. And he stayed involved, got deeper involved, went back to London for that time, comes back. And one of the big achievements is that in 1885, they get Buddha's birthday or Vesak to become a public holiday. This is amazing. So he's he's not trying to He's not trying to create like a nationalist revolution, but by 
really encouraging and fostering pride in local culture and history, it happens anyway. And when he realizes he inadvertently contributed to that, he's like, yeah, double down, let's go. So his school efforts are also hugely successful. When he arrived Mm. in 1880, there were four Buddhist schools. And in 1907, the year he dies, there were over 20,000 students attending 183 Buddhist schools. So Buddhist schools as in kind of like a Catholic school, like there's a, mm. a, a an association, but it's also just like a school. So not a Christian missionary school. So more local in that sense. Right, right, right. It's not proselytizing. It's just locally owned air quotes and operated to just give essential foundational education. He was so influential that Sri Lanka even had a special stamp of his face in the 60s. I mean, why not? And I'm going to yada 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 the rest of his bio. He gets involved in this (laughs) idea of pursuing a united Buddhist world. He goes to Burma when the last king was in power. And I mean, that was a whole rabbit hole for me. He also goes to Japan to make this united Buddhist world thing happen. And there's power struggles in the Theosophical Society. And in February... 17th, 1907, he dies in Adyar, India from the effects of a bronchial cold. Which tracks for the time. He's really hitting a lot of major, like, like, I I know colonialism was like global at that point, but he's really hitting some hot spots for where colonialism turned into this sort of regressive, nationalist, uh, uh, genocidal, like, he... He's like one of the horsemen of the apocalypse on this tour. It just what what goes on to happen historically in each place. The weirdest thing is that while though he was a major figure, it was noted by the British at the time and safe to assume by the real leadership figures, which he did not yeah. claim to be, that Alcott had a much less of a grasp of Buddhism and local culture and his own influence than he actually did. And despite that, he was still this broker for negotiating equal rights for the Buddhist population. Well, it sounds like the real power is that he was earnestly interested in regional history and culture and was white. Yeah. (laughs) And so he was just sort of able to bring that. It is possible for the white powers that be in this colonial age It is possible for them to engage with and respect, if not fully understand, (laughs) these local traditions, which I can see how that would be very empowering. I can see, though, how the British did not think much of Alcott. Absolutely. Well, he's American, (laughs) for one thing. He's American. He's got this crazy beard. Yeah. And it's such a weird and winding legacy. And I mean, notice he never went back to the US. I I like this one phrase from his biography called, Alcott must be admired for his sheer audacity. Yeah. And persistence, really. Like he really went for it. Yeah. And he was really torn up when Blavatsky died, obviously. And the way the Theosophical, the Theosophical Society took a turn. I didn't want to get, I would, we would be here for hours and hours if I Mm. did the, what happened after. Right. But what do we think of the chums? What do we think of? Theosophy, HPB, the occult, where are we? Early in this series, you used the word seeker just to describe someone on a sort of spiritual mission of there's there's something out there. I need to go have experiences. I need to learn. I need to network and engage. And it sounds an awful lot like Alcott really was that. And Blavatsky sometimes was that, 
but had a little bit of a manic personality where sometimes she seemed happy to just see how much she could control and influence people, sometimes wanted to create something like an empire, sometimes just wanted to be comfortable. Like, it seems like what she was interested in fluctuated a lot, whereas Alcott seemed a lot more focused and earnest throughout the whole thing. Not not to, like, pick the winner or anything, but... it's. I find it so fascinating, and I'm really looking forward to covering, dare I say, other Russian mystics. Yeah. <laughs> Rasputin and Gurdjieff, and see if there's any commonalities. Because I, I look at Blavatsky, and I just think there's there has to be some there there. Oh, yeah. In terms of her photographic memory, in her abilities, there's something there that makes her just this crazy charismatic person. When you're in front of her. Yeah. And when you're engaging with her. And yet I also clearly see her humanity. Right. <laughs> How difficult she is to, I don't know, the difficulty of her human experience is really laid on the page. Right. I can see how she might indulge tricks at the mm -hmm. expense of something being real because real psychic phenomena is very subtle and it's boring. And she, she knows she needs the theatricality to get the, the, the buy-in that she needs. I I kind of ache at this India chapter of like trying to go and find your life. And they're just the yeah. odd man out in so many ways from these larger <laughs> power plays. Mm -hmm. And also in the contrast between what is considered true holy men there who are yeah. probably just looking at Blavatsky. What, what are you talking about, lady? Right. Maybe rejecting the showmanship. But I find her story so interesting and compelling on the yeah. whole of what a life this lady led. I want a prestige television miniseries covering both of them and and just the weird, the, the, the tangled web of their lives. But I'm also fascinated. I don't know if it's just, it, it seems hard to disconnect the contemporary history that they lived through and sort of being really on the cusp of what would become the 20th century and what happened to these power struggles and what happened to national self-determination and what happened so dramatically in the specific places where they really spent time. It just, it seems very connected. I don't totally know how, and I don't want to like credit them with creating revolutions necessarily, but I'm very, like they clearly had different experiences when they were both writing for these periodicals. And I'm just like, who was reading her stuff in Russian-speaking countries? You know? What yeah. What was being taken during, like, the Bolshevik Revolution? Was she... Did she get named dropped for some of that stuff? I'm just wondering. And what did Rasputin think of her? I have no idea. We will discover as we do more and more episodes. But in keeping with our miniseries theme, just imagine she was in Bowery Boy Gangs of New York. Mm -hmm. Blavatsky goes in the background. Lincoln. Alcott's there doing some <laughs> investigative work. Jack the Ripper Blavatsky's yes. moving in the background. You, you could just do that with an opening credit sequence. Gandhi shows up and is like, eh, you got some good ideas. The Jungle Book, Blavatsky's in the <laughs> scene. Fucking <laughs> Kipling, just... It, it defies credulity to imagine all of these people coexisting. It just doesn't seem possible. And I think it's... Speaking to the idea of a seeker and the path of a seeker, mm. the first thing that at least comes to mind when I first heard of the path of the seeker was, well, I don't want to seek. I want to find the destination. I don't want to be like Alcott. Right. I want to be already enlightened. And 
If anything, that attitude takes one further off the path. It doesn't actually get you your answers to want them that way. But by being engaged with the world and wanting to know and exploring what's in front of you, like Alcott did, you get to some places. Was he perfect? Was his method perfect? Absolutely. 1000% no. But I think of it like when HBB was younger, when she's just this little goth teenager in her grandpa's secret library reading books that would have gotten him beheaded. And she wants to know. She wants to engage. And I think that quality got lost once they were in India and trying to support themselves on her cult of personality. I think New York was way more fun because it was working out and they couldn't recreate it in India. That, I think, is a very keen observation of of what was happening there. And it, it humanizes it a lot. Yeah, and I think had she been a young woman mm. in their India chapter, she could have learned so much from yeah. these holy men, gone to these places, had more patience for it. And I think in the latter part of life, she just wanted to had, have devotees, live on her island, you know, be in her community. She wanted what she, that creation that she ultimately died with, you know, inner circle, you're supported, right. people think you're great, which isn't bad. Don't we all want to retire at some point? But right. we want to be comfortable. It's not, it wasn't sort of true to her own curiosity and it didn't do her any favors the way she went about trying to get it. Yeah. It's, it's a very different form of celebrity than what we think of today, but it does seem like some part of her wanted to be her understanding of famous or maybe famous on her terms. Definitely that. It's hard for me to relate to, but I can see how you could become enamored of the idea of celebrity, but also want to recreate it on your terms and, and have a certain, agency that it seems most celebrities lack in that they just sort of become famous and it's out of control. She wanted to be known for ideas. She wanted people to engage with Mm. her ideas. It's why the first part of her life is gone. You can only imagine how many stories she told people of India about where she was from. (laughs) Well, she's hypnotizing pigeons. Yeah. You know, the spiritual, and that shows the spiritual journey, whether you're someone Mm -hmm. like Blavatsky, who's really in touch or someone like Alcott who wants to be. It's it's truly the journey, not the destination. You have to just keep engaging again and again with what's interesting right. versus producing something for people, which is why spiritual gurus even now who are constantly producing content, I'm just so skeptical of because that's not the journey as to you as right. the person. It lacks sort of that genuineness. My favorite spiritual author has written about three books in his entire life doesn't plan to do much more. He's doing, he's living the path. It's, you can be on that seeking journey for so long. And I can see how even when you've been on the journey, you could regress to that point, like you said, where you want to be there, you want to arrive, you want the enlightenment. And you can maybe even trick yourself into thinking that you have it and that you can stop the journey and just be there. Well, you know, by then, when you're dedicating yourself to self-discovery, to engaging with new ideas, you go places. You definitely become mm-hmm. more mature than when you started. And I think even, especially now, when we're so tempted to sort of produce something or show off what we've learned yeah. or commodify everything. Absolutely. Of course, it's tempting to do that, but at what cost? And what cost of the, the reason you are doing it in the first place? Right. Yeah. Man, this is such a rich rich story. I can't believe I've never heard of this before. A true three-parter. Truly. The one of the founding founding fathers of occults, the occult world, HPB. I'll miss her. She was too strange to live and yet too memorable to fully die. <laughs>